Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church, and we're located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Cynthia Wilson, Worship Executive and Director of Liturgical Resources here at Discipleship Ministries. During this time of transition from virtual to in-person and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and inspire other leaders to seize this moment and to realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and to shape the church we are yet becoming. Friends, today's episode will be a conversation with the Reverend Marilyn Thornton. Reverend Thornton earned a bachelor's degree in music history, focusing on African-American religious music from Howard University, a master's degree in violin from the Peabody Conservatory of the Johns Hopkins University, a master of divinity from Vanderbilt, And she's also an ordained elder in full connection in the United Methodist Church. Reverend Thornton was also the lead editor of African American Resources at the United Methodist Publishing House. She was music editor for the worship songbook, Zion Still Sings, the Africana Hymnal, and a contributing writer for the Africana Worship Book Series. She's been the director of campus ministry at the Wesley Foundation University since 2010. Reverend Marilyn has pastored the Emory United Methodist Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, the Dixon Parish in Stone Chapel and Bowman Chapel. And currently she's pastor at Dixon Memorial United Methodist Church in Nashville. And you know what? Just sharing her bio I'm tired. You work extremely hard, my friend. <laughs> but we are so grateful for you and all of the amazing work that you have done for the United Methodist Church, for local churches and pastors and lay people, students in universities. You've been just amazingly resourceful for our entire denomination and so many others. One of my favorite things uh, that you do is storytelling. I absolutely thoroughly enjoy Marilyn when you put your music in your song and your story all together in preaching and in singing and in playing uh, and teaching. I am always amazed at the giftedness that we uh, get to uh, take advantage of when you appear in any room. So I am. I'm just thrilled to death. We've been trying to get you on this podcast for months and we are finally together and we are saying thank you for uh, your yes. Thank you so much for um, saying yes to uh, being our guest today on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So friends, would you help me to welcome the Reverend Marilyn Thornton? Uh, Your fabulous ministry has taken you all over our denomination and other spaces and places. you And you've had some recent transitions, is that correct? That is absolutely correct, yes. So what's life like for you these days? 
Well, uh, it's, a, it's, it's like everyone else. I'm transitioning uh, into, uh, well, the, the pandemic in and out, you know, in person uh, or uh, online, um, remote, what we call remote. And the challenge there is to make it not feel remote. Okay, uh, to make it feel like we are in the same room. And that's why I'm grateful for these kinds of things, these uh, Zoom and even conference call uh, ministry. So, um, yes, I was at the publishing house for uh, 18 years and there has been quite a transition there. Uh, a lot of downsizing. And uh, so there's been quite an adjustment uh, when we were sent home from the UMPH the second week in March. Uh, work from home and um, we were, uh, then the fifth students were sent home the third week in March. Wow. <laughs> oh, yes, they were sent home. And uh, the, the life in, in academia has been different. Uh, at Fisk, they had a very stringent um, protocol, uh, protocol uh, in terms of the COVID. And so uh, between not working at the UMPH, uh, I was blessed to get a, a pastorate, uh, which had me doing two uh, separate things again. But uh, we were doing uh, remote worship and we were doing conference call worship. And so the first thing that was uh, interesting to me was uh, people were, uh, some people were very angry about not being in person, all right? They said, we, we shut the doors of our church and the, the devil this and the devil that. I said, well, wait a minute, the doors are not, the doors of the church are not closed unless your heart is closed, all right? The, the doors of when I, when I was a kid, the pastor would open the doors of the church to, to as an invitation for discipleship. That's how he said the doors of the church are now open. And I remember being so confused as a child. Well, wait a minute. But the doors of the church were open when we came in. That's how we got in. But he's talking about opening your heart to Jesus. And so this is one thing that we've had to do uh, as leaders in the church and as lay people, whoever. We've had to open our minds and open our hearts to doing things in a different way, but still knowing that God, God, just as God is in those four walls, God is through the wires. God is in that. I mean, really, God is in the satellite. You talk about God of the universe. Okay. Uh, God is everywhere and enabling us and empowering us to have worship uh, in so many ways. Now the people miss uh, being together. Okay. But we are together. So one of the challenges that I had in, in doing conference call worship is we did conference call worship uh, because I had a rural church, two rural churches, and some of the people did not have access to Internet. And some people did not have and even when they, they did not have iPhones and what have you. So landline was what everybody had. Right. And so that is what that means that that's what was accessible to everyone. That's why we did it that way. And so I thank God for the mute button. All right. <laughs> you know, people do it at, at church. It's like they get up and walk around at church. They get up and walk around at home and everybody can hear that. All right. And it's hard to continue in worship. So you have the mute button and then they can unmute themselves to participate. And, you know, I got as many people as possible to do things like read scripture and uh, sing a song and they can unmute themselves. And we really had a, a thing going. Uh, it got to be very well done. If you were, people were, were blessed by it. And then I would do things from time to time to help them. Cause these are people I really had not set eyes on. 
all right, because they were uh, doing remote, they were doing conference call worship when I became their pastor. And uh, so to uh, have kind of visualization exercises during the course of the um, worship, you know, we would start worship, people would in- introduce themselves and things like that. I said, well, I know someone, so I, I wrote down the names every single time. I wrote down everybody's name who, who called in and I would make sure that, um, so, so sometimes we have uh, something, well, think about so-and-so's face and let's think about how you would love to see that face, what that face looks means to you. And so that helped them to feel uh, connected. Uh, that's one of the things that we use. Something else that we use that uh, I know we'll probably talk about later, but uh, you know, you work on these things and you say, well, you know, this is for the church, but the Africana hymnal with its flash drive right. was very, very helpful in having music, okay? Uh, and having uh, like a full design of music. I mean, it's one thing for people, somebody to get on and sing a solo because that's what you can't really do duets and things like that on a call conference because it's gonna, not going to coordinate. But to you be able to use flash drive music from the flash drive was wonderful. And then I tell people, they, I, they would be muted. I said, well, you can sing along with this at home. Mm-hmm. All right. And they were muted. And so that was to have the Africana hymnal and flash drive was very helpful to me. It's interesting because it took me a couple of, a couple of months to figure it out. <laughs> I had to remember. All yeah. right. This is, we have something. We have something that's helpful that can that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so you you uh, were able to discover an expanded view of local church ministry, um, and you did this with local church persons, but you also did this with uh, youth and with young adults, with college students. Uh, is is that right or? Well, this is the thing. Um, in, I've been doing campus ministry since two thousand ten, and we work closely together, campus ministers. We've been in, in, in encouraged to do a collaboration mm-hmm. a lot. And, uh, and in campus ministry, we're actually, pa- we are pastors, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we're, we're elders, we're deacons. Um, and I have helped just as, just as any pastor through the two, 10 years I've been, been there, I have helped students get admitted to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I've been them in the hospital. I've talked with family members about the well-being of their students. I've advised students spiritually and academically, as well as doing the typically church things like Bible study, uh, getting them to plan and participate in worship and service projects, and uh, as well as doing the things that people like to associate with young people, you know, the recreational cultural activities. All right. But we are we are pastors. Okay, And so that's what I'm talking when I say that about expanding the view of the local uh, church um, as to what it actually is. You know, campus ministry is viewed by the United Methodist Church as being extension ministry. Right. Okay? And the local congregation is viewed as being its part. And of course, part of the difference with campus ministry is that your congregation shifts, you know, uh, year by year. Okay. Sometimes you get, you're lucky if you get a kid that's there for four years. Okay, four right. or five. Okay, okay. Yeah, you like that. You, you get them when they're freshmen and they stick with you. And that has happened several times. And it's wonderful when that happens. You get to develop a, a wonderful relationship. But then you do. It's part of you got to move it. It's a rotational type of thing. So that's part of what makes it different. But part of what makes it the same is that you are providing the same 
pastoral ministry for those students while they are in your care. It's almost like a watch care type of thing, yeah. all right, uh, as a campus minister. So, uh, so one of my frustrations, one of my frustrations as a campus minister, uh, however, is that it seems that the local church uh, has a kind of parochial point of view. Okay, uh, my church and my people, and it's all right here. Whatever's supposed to happen is right here. Okay, uh, forever and ever, my family even. And so, but the campus ministry is uh, broader. And part of what we try to do and what I've tried to do is, is create a broader perspective. You know, they're going out into the world. That's why they come to college because they're going out into the world. And they really are. We want them to do what we have been taught, transform the world. And sometimes I think that the, the local church perspective doesn't get, get that that we're really supposed to transform the world. It's not just about your village, your hamlet, your neighborhood. It's about transforming the world. And I think this is why we have such a problem with racism. Uh, the local church, the church has not done what it's supposed to do. All right. And it's about loving. Uh, John Wesley was the first campus minister, by the way. A lot of people don't really think of it. Okay, like that. He started even before he started pastoring, he was doing campus ministry with his holy club that they called it. Okay, and he was on, on Oxford campus uh, doing those kinds of things. And so um, we, we have not truly sought to love and value each human being as God's own child. And I believe that pastors and campus ministers must be more worried about, we, we, we are always challenged. This is like, you know, I do the reports every year and everything, you know, how many people, how many this, how many that, rather than, I mean, transformation takes time. It's an inner process, right? Uh, we receive students who have never thought about anything beyond their community, mm-hmm. all right? So part of, you know, and, and, and they've been in church, Okay, and but when they look at the outside community, it's about what are we going to do to change that out there? It's a missionizing uh, type of thing rather than how do I transform myself so that the world becomes a place where there is uh, truly equity and uh, love that we love everybody. You know, when Jesus talked about being perfect, I remember one of my first arguments with a with a uh, when I was in college was about the. Uh, statement that Jesus said, be perfect, because everybody always said, well, you can't be perfect. That, that's, you know, you can't. I said, well, what, what, wait a minute, was Jesus lying? I mean, you know, was he <laughs> yanking our chain? What, what did he mean by that? But the thing is, you got to read the whole passage. Mm-hmm. All right. And that was one of my first papers that I wrote when I was when I went to divinity school was uh, the, the, the Matthew uh, five and uh, 42 through 46, something like 48, something like that. And he, he was talking about love. That's what he was talking about. Yeah. When he said be perfect. He wasn't talking about uh, Western society, right. you know, the Michelangelo statue type of thing. Okay. He was talking about have perfect love, complete, all encompassing, all encompassing love that includes even your enemies. Right, right. Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Everyone walking on this earth. Mm-hmm. That's what so that's what I mean by expanding. The vision, the the perspective of the local church, Uh, we're urged in Romans to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, okay, as our spiritual worship, 
Right. Right. Okay. The worst so and to, to be not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right. Okay. And see, so that's why, I, uh, and this is what in the church also, uh, in my sermons, you know, I'm always like trying to do something, expand somebody's mind, right. <laughs> you know, uh, to expand my mind. I like to learn new things all the time. And this is what uh, people, people uh, have said. They said, I like the way that you put together the service, you know, the music and the scripture and everything and everything you sing in the sermon all comes together to create a new idea that I can think about during the week. You know, you know, Reverend, you're one of the real fortunate ones. And I think about your dual and triple uh, and sometimes quadruple leadership style yeah. and all of the gifts that God has given you. It, it seems to me that during this COVID season, you kind of had all of the tools that were necessary to get through this season. I'm just thinking about uh, the ways in which you, you wove, you've been uh, really masterfully um, moving people, whether it's in the church or in the classroom, moving them through scripture, through storytelling. I wish I had asked you to bring your violin so that you could do at least one thing for us uh, today. But I'm just, I'm just thinking of how fortunate your people have been to have uh, such a trilingual uh, pastor who, who walks in with all of these gifts and graces, teaching and preaching and singing. And um, How has that been for you personally in terms of uh, the various ways in which you've done worship uh, with your your audiences in the midst of COVID? Well, um, I love to sing, all right? Um, and I love storytelling. I mean, Jesus was a masterful storyteller, you know, the, and even the stories that are there uh, about his life. Um, so I, have, I do use music in with um, this, sometimes there's a song in the, in the sermon, okay, mm-hmm. inside of the sermon, you know, interpolated in there because it's just so perfect, okay? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't, what some people say, if you, if you sing, you've prayed twice, well, you know, uh, sometimes the song or the music is uh, the sermon. Uh, of course, people want you to preach. They want to hear I'm not going to get away with that, just singing a song. But, uh, you know, um, I just try to weave in. I, I like using the lectionary. I'll put it there. I'll say that. I think I like using the lectionary. It, it, it provides a step that um, I don't have to guess about. And I find that if you're really paying attention to what's going on in the world, one of those scriptures, at least one of them, is going to tap right into what something that might need to be said to uplift to challenge, to uh, inform uh, people of what, uh, how to interpret what is going on uh, in their lives and in the world. Uh, and we have, the, you know, I'm, well, I'm African-American as many people may know, uh, but we just have this uh, history, you know, because, and our songs are so adaptable uh, to it that because we had to adapt in life. Okay. We had to adapt. We had to adapt what we understood about God. We talking about, we were talking earlier before we came online about, you know, Kairos time. Those, they had an understanding. Well, this might not happen in my lifetime. 
but I'm going to hold out the hope for my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, you know, so, so they, so we were able to maintain hope and for a better day and for um, uh, some of these things to, to uh, evolve out. And, but so, but it is frustrating that we're still dealing with so many of the things that our ancestors, my mother, my dad, you know, sometimes I, um, both of my parents have passed away, but sometimes I think about my father in particular with his struggles in the federal government. And I said, well, what is, and he finally began to move. And uh, it's like, what are we doing? I mean, what's happening? Okay, why are we still in the same place? And so this is why the Elijah Project with the Wesley Foundation uh, is, uh, was so critical to me because there's such a uh, reticence to talk, I feel like Christians should be able to talk about anything because we have a foundation of the love of Christ. That's really what it's supposed to be about, that we love one another as Christ loved us and that we do unto others as we want to be done to us. And then we know the history. We know that hasn't happened. All right. But how, so how do we get started? And sometimes uh, the challenge, I guess, for me, being at the uh, publishing house, you know, you, you hit with that vacation Bible school program or whatnot, you hit lots of churches at one time. Mm-hmm. And with the Wesley Foundation, you know, it's a few students, all right? But it's still people, okay? And I have never been one, at, even as a performer, <clears throat> to worry about how many people are in the audience. If it's two people in the audience, they're going to get the same show, all right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know about that. Yeah as if there was 10,000, all right? Because they're there and they deserve that. Um, So um, the Elijah Project, when when we went into the pandemic, um, uh, I just started praying. I said, well, Lord, what shall I do? Because we are not going to be on campus, okay? We're not gonna be on campus, all right? And I have been kind of pressing in our um, campus ministry uh, meetings and what have you, Oh, well, why don't we talk about racism? Because all these things that are happening, I mean, the, the murders that happened in Charleston, um, these, were, these were committed by people in the age group that we serve. Now, you're, you're mentioning the Elijah Project and you're talking about campus. So where did the Elijah Project begin? And- began with Fisk, began with me. Okay, where? At the campus? No, online. We haven't been oh. on campus. With it yet. All okay. right. <laughs> so that was one of the Zoom. You said that was interesting when you said that I seem to have the gifts for this time. No, I had to learn about Zoom. Yes. <laughs> I had to, uh, you know, uh, learn how it, will that work. And I think that the that platform was perfect for a, a discussion, a difficult discussion, because it provided neutral ground. All right. When you're at somebody's church building, when you're at someone's building of TSU Wesley Foundation or Fisk Wesley or Belmont, wherever, you're on somebody's turf. But when you're in Zoom, <laughs> you're in space. You're on, you're on God's turf. Okay. okay. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So it gave a, a, a neutral space in which to talk. And so uh, how I thought about it was well, we have to start having conversations because the, like I said, some of the people say, well, it's old people, you know, they're so, you know, they want to come out of their ways. But no, it's a lot of young people perpetuating 
uh, these uh, mass murders, you know, whether they were racially involved or whatever. These were young white males in their 20s. All right. And so that's who, why we are not talking, and why aren't we talking about this then? And so it became an opportunity for me to think of a way to talk about it. You know, in a small group, it was a, we called, I called it a pilot project. And um, I involved uh, three other Wesley Foundations. Well, well, two other Wesley Foundations, one Wesley Fellowship, uh, one uh, at the TSU, which is another HBCU, and then uh, Austin P and Belmont. With, uh, so I talked with their, their campus ministers, okay? They're Wesley Foundation people. And first we began to talk about our own experiences dealing with um, racism, um, what it is. The Elijah Project was a, a program that was conceived by me as a vehicle to equip uh, black and white young adults in collegiate ministry to take leadership in recognizing the impact of racism and white supremacist ideology on society, all right? And one of the primary purposes of the project was to build a relationship built, uh, founded on Christian ethics, the Christian ethics of justice and love and treating others as you wish to be treated. All right, so we started last September, but the, the minister started, we started uh, ahead of time to educate ourselves all right, and to see how we should relate and how this would affect our talking, um, our emotions, um, our um, own uh, intellectual abilities and what have you. And so the people who were uh, with me on that were uh, Reverend Michelle Morton at TSU and um, uh, David Hollis at Bel Belmont, and then also Reverend Katie Woodard who um, was at uh, Austin P. We're gonna continue next year with um, uh, Reverend Nancy Parker, who's at um, Vanderbilt. And, um, but we had workshops. We decided dates for workshops. Um, our uh, first workshop was called Foundations of White Supremacy. All right. Uh, the second workshop was Reorientation of Theological Thought and Biblical Interpretation. All right, because there's a lot that was taught. And one of the things that happened at Tennessee Annual Conference this year uh, was that they went through some of the things that had been done uh, in churches as a church, that they was actually a, a deliberate attempt to justify slavery. And you had your slave Bible in which certain passages were not included and certain passages were included. All right. So everybody who attended annual conference got to hear that. And I'm sure that's a first. So it's about the holding the church accountable for its own uh, part in not spreading a full gospel, a perfect love gospel, all right, of Jesus Christ. And then what do we do to uh, get out of that um, and, uh, and it's not just about telling for me, you know, I love storytelling, uh, but I get a little annoyed when people say, well, we just have to know each other's stories. No, it's more than about, it's about knowing the story in a particular context, mm -hmm. okay? Because see, people can get off. I've been in those discussions where uh, people wanna tell their story and then the story that always comes to the top is the story that has always come to the top, mm -hmm. All right? 
And so we want to tell stories. And so anyway, the virtual platform provided um, uh, students a safe place uh, to get common terminology, to understand some difficult concepts and have some new ways of thinking in a non-judgmental setting. We had 12 students, six blacks and six whites. We tried to uh, have an equal number of girls. Well, they're not girls and boys, but you know, um, men and women. <laughs> and um, it was uh, the, some of the impact statements. Um, so we did it three workshops in the, fall, in the fall and three workshops in the spring semester. It was all online. And the ones that we did in the spring were led by the campus ministers in which we did more hands-on stuff. We did some acting out and some role playing. And uh, the students really um, seem to have gotten a lot of it. They came to some particular conclusions. Uh, they appreciated, uh, they, they, they began to see uh, that it is, it, you can't lie about it. It's an evil deception. This is how they put it. They said, it's an evil deception that prevents people from seeing how the twin elements work in various structures from school to job, community, and church, all right? And they appreciated the opportunity to be in the Elijah Project and to begin to claim ownership for, be, for beginning to uh, connect the dots, okay, of awareness. Sometimes you see something, you don't know how to process it. Okay, now they have tools to process some things. All right, they have um, more with practicing, the role playing, they have some empowerment, uh, they have some empathy. Sometimes you see something, and it's like, oh, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, my, my, you, know you hear this all the time, you know, my, my great grace didn't own any slaves, so there's no empathy. All right, and so, and then to take personal responsibility and therefore um, to to have some transformation. So I'll let me tell you a little bit about why we called it the Elijah Project. Okay. All right, um, Elijah McCain, McLean was a young man who uh, lived in Aurora, Aurora, Colorado. And uh, he was a sensitive young man. He played the violin, so I guess that kind of okay. uh, resonated with me, but he was, he was such a sensitive young guy that uh, he would go to uh, pet uh, cat uh, rescue places to play his violin for the cats. All right. And, um, but he also had allergies and things and he was a sensitive little guy. And uh, so he wore a mask all the time. This is in 20, this is before the pandemic. He wore a mask all the time and he wore gloves. And so he was coming out of the store. He had just done some shopping for himself. He's coming out of the store and the police stopped him because he had on a mask. Mm, okay. And he says, well, leave me alone. This, I wear this all the time. I have allergies. Leave me alone. And so he became, you know, they wouldn't leave him alone. And they shot him with a, a dose of ketamine. They called the ambulance. And they shot him with a dose of ketamine, uh, which stopped his heart. And uh, he was taken to the hospital. And seven days later, his family took him off of life support. And he died. Now, this happened in 2019, August 2019. Nobody heard of it until George Floyd last May. And so uh, it didn't even, it didn't come up. It came up at the same time with the George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, which was a little later actually in 2020, but uh, we started hearing about uh, Elijah McClain. And I said, well, let's call this the love because he was 23 years old. So he was in that age group. Right. And we're losing these people. We're losing them either to hatred, you know, something, you know, 
the violence that they, they're perpetuating uh, and we're losing, we we're, we're just plain losing them because they're not here, okay? Because they're gone. Uh, Miss Brianna Taylor is gone. And so um, that's why we called it the Elijah Project. And, you know, it has a kind of prophetic uh, sound to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the prophet Elijah. And we, this is a prophetic ministry. We're trying to move ahead and create some, help to create some transformation in the hearts and minds of people as they go back to their local um, settings. So the, and the project itself is, is operating out of four, five institutions here in Nashville? Well, it, it's four, okay? Four. Uh, next year, we will not, Austin P will not be doing it, but Vanderbilt will. So okay. it's four. So two uh, PWIs, what we call, you know, predominantly white institutions and two HBCUs, uh, historically black, okay? Mm-hmm. So, and we try to get an equal number of male and female and then we have breakout groups, okay? Um, I manipulate those so that nobody is alone, okay? So there's not one white person in the group or one black person in the group, okay? That all the kids from one school are not just talking together. So we really, um, so that there is a diversity of experience and opinion, all right? And revelation, and they can learn from one another at, in the breakout groups as well. So, so my, most of our local churches uh, have been privy to the, the amazing work that you have done in creating resources for both for the local church as well as for campus meant for academia. Um, you, you've named several of them, the Africana uh, Songbook. Um, you, you've helped to uh, create um, a love and appreciation for songs from the Black experience. Um, the VBS, the amazing ways in which you brought scripture to life through VBS, um, the worship book series, the Africana worship book series, all of these have served the church in amazing ways, Marilyn. I don't think you have any clue uh, as to how rich this resource is and how it has been appreciated across the church. And you probably, I don't know if you are aware of how these various resources uh, are serving other denominations, uh, how these resources are serving uh, other, you said HBCU just a moment ago. Um, We wanna be sure that our listeners uh, are clear about what that is, HBCUs historically. Black colleges and universities, we, we see them as we move about the, the uh, academic settings as well as local churches. But now you're back uh, serving as a, a newly um, vented, pa- vetted pastor in the United Methodist Church. So how are these resources working for you now in the setting as a pastor? Because you've been doing quite a bit in the academic setting. So are these, how are these sir, how are these resources working for you now as a, a pastor? Well, they um, work for me in that doing those kinds of resources have kept me in a steady mode. Steady, S-T-U-D-I. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't spell. Sorry, <laughs> it's just steady. 
<laughs> so, so it's like, I was like, you know, I wrote something about that. You know, when the scripture comes up, I said, I wrote something, I got a, something there. Uh, and, and so I go and I pull on those resources. I said, that's in, I said, I need a, um, a call to worship that was, I said, it seemed like I wrote something or somebody else or, you know, somebody else wrote something. And so I have those resources with me uh, and I'm able to pull them and use them and not try to, uh, because, you know, we have had to be so creative this over the past 18 months or 16 months, however long. Uh, and so it's helpful to have something that's done. Yes. Yes. All right. And to be able to pull on that. And even uh, in the campus ministry, you know, and with the vacation Bible school program, I had what we call a worship DVD <laughs> and the students, and so this, the, which had videos and uh, dance videos and also uh, dramatic little things. Um, yeah. And the students loved them. Okay. Yeah. Even though they were intended for, uh, well, they were intended for a wide variety. That's a, it was an intergenerational thing, but they loved that. That would set off a conversation. All right. Uh, this past Sunday, I used the song um, as part of an introduction to, you know, that was what you call the uh, sermonic preparation. And uh, my daughter who wrote the song was able to come in and sing it, living in the imagination of God. Oh. And you know, the script this past Sunday was about how God will do whatever you can. You can't even imagine what God will do as we have to live in the imagination. This is what we're doing right now. Okay. Living in the imagination. I mean, God is infinite. What is available, but we have just let ourselves be proscribed to what well, we have the scripture. We have the song, we have the this, we have the that, and that's that. So one thing that I did with the congregations, um, and I'm not claiming to be any kind of expert on this, uh, but uh, I grew up in a church, uh, what uh, people call the, the historic Shallow Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. I grew up in that church and it had a, um, uh, what they call the silent mission, it had a deaf ministry since 1941. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we went along in years, cause that was before I was born, um, but um, the, in the end result now is that everybody worships together because there's always an interpreter. But it started with the pastors telling the people, we need to be able to speak something in their language. And so he, he required everybody to learn the doxology and the Lord's Prayer. And so I, my sister still, I have a sister that still goes to Shiloh. And she is an interpreter. She learned American Sign Language. And then I have another sister who was there. And so I had them practice with me the doxology. Mm-hmm. And the people, because one of the things we said about uh, part of the protocols is that they wanted to reduce congregational singing, mm-hmm. you know, because of the expect, you know, uh, how we expel uh, our breath. And so I said, well, we need to do something that is congregational. And so I said, let me, let me relearn, praise God. Let me, let me learn the doxology. And I practiced that with my sister uh, on a Zoom practice, okay? And uh, I, t- I taught it to three congregations. Okay, the two that I had um, from August to, to June and then this new uh, Dixon Memorial that I've been at now since the end of June. And they love doing something new. They love doing something with, and these are many of them are older people, okay? But they're doing something and they can feel in their bodies and they can 
connect that brain activity. Okay, and the music is playing. Um, we, we, I'm blessed to have you know musicians, uh, pianists, organists, and um, so to never forget how to to never give up doing something else or even going back because that's what I did. I went back into my my personal history. All right, to get this um, praise God, and I said I practice my sister practice every night. We're on Zoom. Practice what around yeah, it's like this. That's from okay, and uh, that was hard for me for some reason. <laughs> and uh, but the praise God, and then a, a father like a cap father, and so uh, the people really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, something new. It was something different for them. They felt like they had learned uh, and they were still praising God. And so we do that. We, we, we were not taking up an offering, but it reminds them to leave their offering. Okay. okay because they're leaving it at the door when they come in, uh, because that's part of the, the protocol for in-person worship uh, is not to pass the plate. And so they leave it at the door, but we recognize the offering during worship through the sign language of the doxology. Going back to uh, your story about opening the doors of the church, that particular experience is a wonderful example of how it is that you expand uh, the opening of the space that includes persons who are differently abled, uh, persons who are, are fully able according to what we consider to be ne- normal, right, uh, but not exclusive uh, from those persons who may not speak in the way that we speak, but it calls to the attention of the congregation that there are some other folk uh, among us. And uh, how is it that they are ministering to the folk that they are engaged with from day to day? Uh, That is so fascinating. I, I just love that. And I I'm going to footnote you, but I certainly am going to use that story um, when, I, when I have the opportunity because uh, I, I just think that's amazing uh, that you were able to include the entire congregation and remind them that the, their way of being is not the only way of being. Um, I, I could talk to you all day. I, that's why I've been so anxious to get you on the podcast. I'm going to probably bother you again because I, <laughs> So much more that we could talk about. But Reverend Marilyn, I want to say thank you uh, for joining us today. Uh, I hope that this has been helpful to you as it has certainly been to us. And I'm sure that our audience would love to hear more uh, about what you're doing. I'm sure they'd love to know where you are. Can you uh, share with the audience how they can find you? Okay, well, I'm on Facebook, Marilyn Thornton. You just have to spell my name right to get it, okay? <laughs> okay, M-A-R-I-L-Y-N dot E dot T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N at gmail.com. And to our audience, if you didn't get that, just be in touch with us at umcdiscipleship.org. But tell us what you think. Tell us if there's something that you want to hear more about. Tell us if you have an idea about a podcast. Uh, But until next time, when we're together, we're gonna be praying for you. We're gonna be praying for you along with your congregations. 
We pray that God will continue to bless your worship ministry as you go from this place making disciples for the transformation of the world. God bless you, friends. Bye-bye. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.